It's Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Isn't it always exciting to start a new series? Uh, looking at God's word uh, for another term we are. And we like to work through themes or, or, or sections of scripture in logical blocks the way we do, just to make sure that we don't start you know, picking out a verse here or a paragraph there that we like and skimming over other important things. We, we rather want to listen as fully as we can to the word of God. And for this series, we want to take our third chunk as, or, or logical block out of, out of Matthew's gospel, this time from chapters 8 through 12. And we want to read it carefully and see what it says. Uh, we're calling the series Jesus and the People because that's basically what unfolds across these chapters. All kinds of people come to Jesus. Jesus engages with all kinds of people. So Jesus and the People seemed like a reasonable enough uh, theme to work with for this term. And I say our third chunk out of this gospel because uh, we've previously worked through two other series here at New City. Uh, we looked at the bookends to the whole gospel, if you uh, recall. First four chapters of Matthew and the last three chapters to think about the person and the work of Jesus, who, who he is and what he ultimately came to do. Uh, he is God with us, we learned, and he came to lay down his life to atone for our sin. That framework is key to understanding the whole gospel of Matthew, so we'll reflect back on that from time to time while we do work our way through the middle. And if you want to refresh your memory or catch up with that, look up the series that we called The Christ on the website or the podcast. 
We also, uh, a bit later, worked through Jesus' famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, in a series that we called The Kingdom Heart, if you want to refresh on that one too. In those chapters, Jesus taught us what kind of life he wants us to pursue as his kingdom people. And that, of course, is what he came to call us, came to, call us to, uh, the kingdom of heaven. If you recall chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We must not lose that more important context to all of this now that we come back again to Matthew in the middle, because we're going to see some pretty eye-popping stuff in these chapters, but but all of it only insofar as Jesus was heralding something bigger than these things, something truly epic. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we look through the various interactions Jesus had with the people of his day in these chapters, we've got to keep that big picture in mind because these chapters that we are going to read through fit within that wider context of those other chapters. Jesus is God with us who came to earth so as to receive the judgment for our sin upon himself such that we could be saved into the kingdom of heaven. And we, of course, can sit here and know these things now as we flick around in Matthew's Gospel. But, but at the time that all this was unfolding, the people around Jesus couldn't possibly have known the full scale and scope of what he had come to do, could they? We might imagine what it was like to be there. It was certainly marked by great excitement. Uh, we uh, noticed that in both of our last series, in chapters 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 7, but so too at the, at the start of chapter 8 now, notice the sheer volume of people buzzing around Jesus in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, after giving that sermon on the mount, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Matthew keeps reminding us of that. That many, many people were coming to Jesus and following around after him. And, and, and so we would love to know, you know, why were they coming to Jesus exactly? Was it that he had claimed that the kingdom of heaven was near? Was that it? Was it that they, they'd been getting healed of all their sicknesses and so on? Was that it? Was it that he'd been teaching them such beautiful new ethic of, of how to live as God's people? Was that it? Was it for some other reason? Or was it for all kinds of reasons, being such large crowds and probably of so many different people in their motives? Something we can keep our eye on, I think, in this series. Why are people coming to Jesus? What are they looking for exactly? Who do they think Jesus to be? And Matthew slows down the narrative uh, from verse 2 and gives us two personal accounts of these interactions uh, to help feed into that question. And so, so we see two men here, a Jew and a Gentile, we might note, uh, both of whom come to Jesus and both of whom have something very, very profound to say about Jesus and both of whom Jesus seems to be very pleased with. First, the Jew uh, and a very unwell and, and unclean Jew at that uh, comes to Jesus. Verse 2, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. Leprosy is a wasting disease that begins in the skin and the hair and then just starts working inwards. It turns things white and scaly and, and works through the muscles and even to the bone. And uh, the thing to keep in mind as you read verse 2 there is that as this leper comes to Jesus, leprosy is utterly incurable. There is no treatment, just a requirement to separate from other people so as not to infect anyone else. Periodically the priest could examine the patient, but not to heal them. There was no treatment. Rather, they examined just to check on whether it was getting worse or getting better by some uh, stroke of God's providence. The, The process just had to run its own course in the patient. If the leprosy did go away, then the priest could examine and verify that and the patient could be declared clean. But otherwise, they were declared unclean. So we could imagine crowds parting, I think, as a leper comes towards Jesus. Leviticus 13, if you're interested, describes it all for us. Let me give you a sample. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Jesus lets the man come right up to him and kneel before him. And in that posture of kneeling before Jesus, the man calls him Lord and says the most stunning thing about Jesus. Lord, if You will. You can make me clean. By will, the man means desire, not not actions, not whether Jesus will do this thing or not. It's, it's, It's whether Jesus desires to do this thing for him. If you are willing, you can make me clean which is stunning, as I say, because just think about what this man is putting here in front of all these people, what this man believes. Who could an Israelite appeal to as being the one who wills our healing of such an incurable disease at that? Surely he could only attribute that will to God. Think of Job, for example, who had the the lesser trouble of, of boils all over his skin from head to toe, not leprosy, and yet he and his wife and all his companions knew precisely who his wrestle was with if he wished to be healed, who he needed to take his complaint or request to. God, of course. Places like Psalm 103 and our call to worship today, which as James said and went on to say in verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Yahweh, the Lord, does all these things. O my soul, bless him and do not forget 
He is the one who does all these things. And yet this leper believes that this is in Jesus' hands to do. The matter being entirely within his will, one way or the other. Have you ever thought about how big this is that the leper is saying about Jesus here? He's not asking Jesus to do what, I don't know, the priests could have done. They couldn't have done this. There's, there's nothing about how to heal a leper in that book of Leviticus. Just instructions for the priests on how to diagnose it one way or the other so they can just declare the person clean or unclean. The, the priests could not do anything about leprosy. No, no, this leper is asking Jesus to do something only God could do. Or rather, he's not even asking. He's declaring that Jesus can do what only God can do if he is but willing. It's a miracle, but of Jesus' will. Even a miracle worker, if we were to think of a miracle worker, can only do what God wills through them, can't they? No, if you will, he says, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus isn't afraid of this man or afraid of his illness. He stretches out his hand and touches him, though, though socially, of course, this man is untouchable. Jesus is not afraid because the disease isn't coming to him. It's going away by his will. The gift for the priest set out in the law of Moses, by the way, is basically a thanksgiving gift, I would say. It's after the person's been examined and, and found to be clean, uh, should God have allowed their leprosy to heal, they then bring this offering. Jesus heals this leper by his will, and we can know he is most certainly healed. No one will make a mistake on this because the priest is going to examine this guy as per Jewish law, and this miracle will be validated and official. From such close quarters with this guy, the, the next incident Matthew shares with us is quite the opposite, wouldn't you say? Jesus' will can heal from afar. A Gentile comes to him, verse 5, and by Gentile I mean a non-Jew, as the Bible refers to them. This man is, is a Roman, not a Jew. He's a Roman centurion, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralysed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And again, notice the same posture as the case before and the same declaration of, of who Jesus is. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In verse 13, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. 
And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus isn't even present with the servant. And we might be inclined to think, if if we were just reading about some miracle worker here, that, that, wait a minute, he doesn't really know the details of the illness itself. I mean, paralysed where? Like, like on what side and, and how? And all that sort of stuff. But, of course, the centurion knows that Jesus is not just some miracle worker. He doesn't need to come. He doesn't need to examine the patient. He needn't be given any specifics. He just knows and has authority over this servant's life and condition. I would put it to you that Jesus marvels at the centurion's words, as it says there, but but not in the sense of being surprised. That if he knew the condition of the servant and could heal it like so, then he'd also know the condition of the centurion in terms of the faith in his heart and that he would say such a thing. And I suggest too that Jesus is actually quite deliberately setting up for something in verse 7 when he offers to come and heal the servant. Setting up for this glorious confession by the centurion as to who Jesus is for the crowd's benefit. And for ours too. Because everyone needs to know, first of all, just who Jesus is and and just how great his authority is. This man knows it and and Jesus lets him declare it to us. So too, we also need to hear the teaching point that Jesus seems to want to bring out of all of this as to his wider purpose in what he's doing in case we uh, glossed over that vital part of it in verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus has come to announce is going to be for people from the east and the west as well of as uh, the people of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is for Jews and Gentiles. And yet at the same time, we note very carefully that not everyone will be included. Not even all of Israel. Some of them will be excluded, verse 12. Which means the kingdom of heaven is not settled on ethnic lines. It seems, rather, that it will be settled on the line of faith. Faith, for which Jesus commends this Gentile centurion in verse 10, and again in verse 13. We need to pay careful attention to what Jesus is always teaching us in the midst of all these wondrous healings. Because he hasn't just come to heal our temporary ailments. He has come more fundamentally to call us into the kingdom of heaven. And for that, we need to come to him in faith. So what are we learning here in these miracle stories? First of all, Jesus is definitely the one we need to come to, for one thing, right? His will and his power and authority is the will and power and authority of God. And uncleanness, even of leprosy, is no barrier for someone to come to Jesus. 
uncleanness, even in the sense of non-Jewishness, is, is no barrier for someone to come to Jesus. But those with no faith in Jesus will forever be banished from his presence in the end. It's actually rather similar to what Jesus had taught us towards the end of chapter 7, if you recall. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we noted there when we were in chapter 7 that, again, miracles take place in Jesus' name. It is his authority. But more importantly, we learned it's, it's not fundamentally about the miracles. It's about finding ourselves, or not, in the kingdom of heaven. That is what Jesus came to proclaim and to bring. And so he continues here in chapter 8, in verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her as she rose and began to serve on him. Uh, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew's pointing us here with that that little reference to the wider scope of what's behind Jesus' will to heal all of these people. It's to fulfill what God had written through Isaiah the prophet about his coming. The scripture that he flags there is actually Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That scripture goes on to describe very clearly the purpose of Jesus' coming, to die for our sin and to be raised to life together with a whole host of people who his death would make righteous. Because this is what makes it possible for unclean people like you and I to enter into that kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to bring. This is what our faith must be in. That Jesus carried our sicknesses and sorrows when he came to die for our sins. Matthew keeps showing us uh, when he points to these things. And this time he points to uh, Isaiah. But, But I wonder if the people at the time could have seen the bigger picture in all this stuff. I mean, do these crowds know these things when they come to Jesus? And is that why they come? Or is it just for the miracle itself that's so desperately needed at that very time. Some of them, at least, having now come, also want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Verse 18, when when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, 
Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This scribe and this disciple seem to be well-intentioned, but uh, perhaps they haven't quite caught the depth of, of what Jesus has come to do hadn't quite caught the gravity of his call on us towards the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tries to call him into that deeper sense of, of coming to him and following him. First to the scribe, Jesus calls him to something more than just following him to the other side of the lake where he's about to go. No, Jesus has got in mind a kind of following that's, that's very different to that, different to this part-time or daytime or good times kind of thing where we just go and check out Jesus and what Jesus is doing every now and then or, or, or go and see from time to time what he can do. Uh, like, I don't know, when we're feeling excited and, and ready for a little adventure or, or some new spiritual short course or something. No, another miracle. No, no, no. Jesus has in mind something more, an ongoing, everyday kind of following him. And the disciple in the next bit seems to get that part of it and yet asks if it can wait. By bury my father, the disciple means Wait until the day comes when my father is gone, when I get my inheritance, you know, in the future. Uh, Or in other words, not yet. I'm not ready to follow you yet, Jesus, in in such an all-consuming, ongoing, everyday kind of way. But that seems to be what Jesus has in mind. Something so important that, that we can't put it off until we're ready later in life or something. Like, I don't know, doing a grey nomad trip around Australia or something. No, it's not something for later. It's something for now. Jesus is giving a call for these people to take up right now. When he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he means that those who are putting off this call to follow him in, in this deeper sense of the word are lost and need to be rescued. Because all the other things that we tend to structure our life around only lead to death in the end because it's only following Jesus that true life can be found. These are pretty big words that Jesus gives this scribe and and, and this disciple at the end here. But I think Jesus means for these questions to land on the whole crowd and upon us too. See, Jesus got a way of bringing out these, these vital teaching points in all these wonderful things that he's doing. So I think we need to stop and ask some big questions of these scriptures. Why are all these people, the great crowds, the leper, the centurion, the sick and the wounded and the demon-possessed and the scribe and the disciple, why are all these people coming to Jesus? What is it that they want from him? What even is it to come to Jesus? We use that language so often. What is it to follow Jesus? What does Jesus want of us? I'm sure we're supposed to be wondering about what's going on in the hearts and minds of all these people as they come and and want to follow Jesus. And, And yet we can't really know, can we, if the text doesn't tell us what's going on in their hearts and minds. But rather then, of course, our focus should instead come to where we can get some answers. So what about us? 
is what we should actually be asking. Why did you come to Jesus? In what sense are you following Jesus? Have you even come to Jesus yet? I mean, do you realise that he's the one who has authority over all your needs? Are you even in the crowd, so to speak? Did you And, and do you come to Jesus uh, just for the occasional fix when you need something? Like the scribe here at the end seems to see things. Or have you realised that Jesus calls you into a, a deeper and, and ongoing life of commitment to him? Have you heard Jesus call you to follow him in faith and, and just been putting that off uh, as if it can wait, like the disciple here at the end, who just doesn't seem to have caught the gravity of what's at stake here? Do you see Jesus as the one who came to heal like this within that framework of, of the greater work that he came to do, that, that Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53. The thing Matthew keeps reminding us about all the way through this gospel, that actually Jesus primarily came to die for your sin, that he wants you to follow him through, through a living faith in him and what he has done for you into the kingdom of heaven that he has opened up for you. And is that still the reason you follow Jesus after all these years? Or have you slowly let your whole Jesus thing become just about your earthly struggles with, with, with health and finance and identity and, and wealth or whatever? Have you lost touch with the sheer breathtaking wonder of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to grant you? This series should open up a lot of questions like that for you and I. It kicks off here at the start of chapter 8, just after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, much like the end of chapter 4 we looked at a while back, just before his Sermon on the Mount. Because there too, in chapter 4, Jesus was calling his disciples and saying, follow me. There too, he was healing everyone from everywhere of everything. Great crowds were coming to him. And, and perhaps we could start shaping a few questions like this around that excitement to try to frame our journey through these next chapters of Matthew's Gospel for all these different interactions between Jesus and the people. What were they looking for? What were they looking for? Why were these people coming to Jesus? And what was Jesus looking for in them? And hopefully... and. Prayerfully, his word to us in these various interactions will speak the same key questions into our own hearts too. I do hope you enjoy the series. Let me close in prayer for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your word to us and, and for this chance we have, this term, to open up Matthew again. We pray that as we think through these scriptures that you would speak to us of your truths and of your power, which are so clearly on display in these pages of Scripture. We pray too that you would help us reflect deeply on, on what these things mean, what you are teaching us through them, so that, so that your love for us and, and your call upon us would soak right into the very core of our being. We thank you, Father, that we see here already that we are welcome to come to you despite our unworthiness and that you have even deeper things in store for us than, than what our limited eyes see. 
teach us, Lord Jesus, what it truly means for us to, to follow you and then lead us in that way. And we ask this in your mighty name. Amen.